Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Six years in a row in the 60s and early 70s, the Grammy for Record of the Year went to the Wrecking Crew recordings. And now the Wrecking Crew tells a story in pictures and in sound, <clears throat> the story of this amazing collection of musicians um, who in that period of time and before and after that actually were responsible for much of the music that you and I have just absolutely adored and and uh, and played endlessly o- over the last uh, many years. Uh, remarkable musicians, an amazing collection of artists. Uh, the Wrecking Crew is... Uh, Directed and produced by Denny Tedesco. He is the son of legendary Wrecking Crew guitarist Tommy Tedesco. And he joins us today here on Film School to talk about The Wrecking Crew. It comes out today in theater. So, Denny, welcome to Film School. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Go ahead. It's a very special day for us, so thank you. Yeah, yeah. So you're out in theaters um, um, here in Southern California. Is it rolling out across the country as well, or are we opening? Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, it, it, it's uh, rolling out. It's in New York, L.A. I want to say it's, um, is it in San... It's all over. It's, it's about five, six uh, cities that's rolling out around the country today, as well as video on demand and iTunes tonight. Fantastic, so, fantastic. Yeah. Well, tell tell me, I mean, uh, the obvious connection here is your, your dad being uh, one of the seminal members, one of the charter members of the Wrecking Crew. Tell us a little bit about what got you started on this project in this documentary? Well, you know, I grew up in, uh, you know, of, of a home of a studio musician, and, you know, I, I thought I knew a lot about my dad's work, but I realized no one in the world knew about what my dad did. And um, in 1996, Dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and I thought, oh, you know, it was like a project I always wanted to do. You know, I went to Loyola Marymount, you know, was a you know film student there. I was a, trying to write and stuff, and we had done a small project there with him, but never you know really did anything. Mm-hmm. And when they said he had terminal cancer, I thought, oh man, I want to tell his story, but I want to tell the story about the wrecking crew. And I quickly jumped into it. Uh, my wife Susie and I, and we got our friends. We because we were both. She was a producer for commercials, and we got our friends, and we started doing, you know filming my dad and and a group of them in 1997 dad passed on mm-hmm. he didn't even see a frame of the film because literally it was little we were shooting film so we hadn't even done anything with it we just uh you know archived it and then 98 we kind of started building on this little 14 minute piece you know just to tease audiences what well, tease audiences looking for money that's yeah, what it came yeah. down to we were looking for money and all the wrong places, I guess, because we never found it. And we just kept going. And uh, and the reason we weren't getting anywhere was everybody said, this is great, but you're going to have to license so much music to tell this story that you're never going to get, A, the record companies and the labels and, you know, and publishers to agree upon this. And the other reason was they said it's going to be so expensive. You know, it's, it's going to be too expensive for any documentary mm-hmm. distributor. Mm-hmm. And uh, we kept going and hoping that something would change. And uh, we kept, in 2006, 
we, Susie, my wife, decided, you know, we just made the most expensive home movie ever. <laughs> we just kept shooting and shooting and shooting. Uh-huh. And, you you know, and I kiddingly say, you know, everybody says, oh, it's a labor of love. Yeah, it's a labor of love because no one else <laughs> was loving like <laughs> we were. And, you know, you think, and I always say, well, the people that did help us, there was companies like Wells Fargo, there was Visa, there was, you know, Capital One, there was, you know, and uh, don't forget Countrywide. We refinanced the house many of times. So we just kept going and putting our own money into it, and finally we just cut a film. Mm-hmm. And that was 2008 mm-hmm. when we went into the festivals. Okay. So you're you're getting... You're, oh, um. So well, let's let's for our audience let them let's let them know who the Wrecking Crew was and why we're you know why are sure. we talking oh, yeah. about the well, Wrecking the Crew? Wrecking Crew were a group of these session musicians. They went, uh, you know, they went from uh, Frank Sinatra to Jan and Dean to Mamas and Papas, Fifth Dimension, Johnny Rivers, uh, the Beach Boys, Nancy Sinatra, anything that was done in L.A. Elvis, if he was in L.A., he would use these guys. Anything that was done in L.A. in the '60s most likely had these guys on it uh, because they were so important to the recording industry because in the early days, like Phil Spector's Wall of Sound, it was only one track. Yeah. So when you're, you know, recording in a small room and you got 10 musicians, everybody in that room had to nail it. You didn't have a, you know, if you had a, a band of kids, let's say they're 19, 20 years old, they're not going to have the recording chops as these guys did. So they were, they could come in three hours, knock out, two, three songs, you know, and and move on to the next recording day. So they could literally, and they did, knock out one album a day sometimes. Amazing. And, you know, and and it was really, it's funny, comparing it to my documentary the other day, it's always about business. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? As much as we want to think art is, you know, as my father said, listen, there's music and there's the music business. Sometimes they, they match. Yeah. Or connect. And for me, I had a, make sure I paid off that uh, music. And for these guys, record companies, they didn't make sure that these guys could make it on time, on budget. And then once it became a hit, then they would uh, basically, you know, record a whole album and move on. We're speaking with Denny Tedesco. He's the director and producer of the film um, The Wrecking Crew. I just real quick, because I'll just go through this, and we won't even begin to scratch the surface of all the m- music that these this collection of musicians made, but here we go. Be My Baby Ronettes, California Girl, Beach Boys, Bridge Over Troubled Water, Simon and Garfunkel, Strangers in the Night, Frank Sinatra, You've Lost That Love and Feeling, Righteous Brothers, Viva Las Vegas, Monday, Monday, Mamas and Papas, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, uh, be, uh, let's dance. Straight. Uh, I mean, it just—it's an amazing. Uh, what am I leaving out? God only knows. Beach Boys. I got you, babe. The beat goes on. Uh, just, uh, just phenomenal, phenomenal music. Uh, and uh, there's so many more. I, I, how many? Do you have any idea how many um records they were involved? No, in? they did thousands. Well, it's funny because my one of the questions that always comes up with, as people say, oh, you know, did your dad feel like, you know, he uh, got paid more? You know, sometimes he did a solo or, or something like that. He said, no. He said, I got paid very well. He said, but he said, I made hundreds of hits, but don't forget, I made thousands of bombs. <laughs> I never gave anyone that money back. 
you know, and it, you know, but the thing is, they did go recording to recording to recording every day. They recorded a new piece of music for years. <clears throat> Sometimes they didn't even, most of the time, they didn't know what they were recording. Yeah. Because don't forget, they were just recording a song two, three times. It's not a hit. You know, right. it's not, it's just a recording. It becomes a hit later. So a lot of times they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. No. And and okay. So let's run through some. I don't. I don't want to leave. I don't want to feel like I'm leaving anyone out of the wrecking crew in terms of recognition here. But sure. obviously, your dad was a big part of it. Dad, uh, dad was was obviously a guitar player. Hal Blaine, who's kind of like the focus of one of the rock drummers of the time, and and Earl Palmer. Yeah. This is more, it wasn't a set band. It was kind of like a loose name that was thrown around. Right. Because at the time, rock and roll, as the older guys were a little worried about it, because they said, these guys are coming in, they're going to wreck the business playing this rock and roll. You know? <laughs> and so you had Hal Blaine, Earl Palmer on drums, and bass player, you had Carol Kay, who was the only woman, uh, Joe Osborne, the phenomenal Joe Osborne, yeah. Lyle Rich. Uh, Jimmy Bond, and then guitars, you had my dad. You had Glenn Campbell, yeah. who was one of the great session players. Billy Strange, Bill Pittman. Um, then you had on on piano, you had Don Randy, Al DeLore, Leon Russell. You know, so then these guys would all work together. They'd sometimes, like Spectre, would have three, four pianos on it. Yeah. Three, four guitars on a session. Right. You know, and they would just work, you know, together. And they would, you know, intermix. It was... You know, they didn't know they were maybe they left at 9 o'clock, you know, to go to a session. And later, 1 o'clock, they're on a different session, run over and not even know that, you know, half the band was going there as well. They just kept going, moving faster, yeah. you know. And it's just, you know, intertwined with each other. It's funny. Uh, the music business, you know, has the ebbs and flows, the, the trends and back and forth. It's certainly, I think it's safe to say that in the era that the Wrecking Crew was in its heyday, uh, it was more of a producer's realm. I mean, if you go back to Phil Spector and the, those kind of people. Yeah, I mean, it, well, you know, it was, it was a group thing, though. Here's why I say that. Those are the days, where, yes, you had producers. They would find the songs. You know, the writers were there. You had the Jimmy Webbs. And this is, the you know, the West Coast. You had Jimmy Webb. You had Steve Berry and P.F. Sloan. You know, you had Carol King out of New York. Um, you know, all this stuff from the Brill Building coming out here. Yeah. Uh, but you had the producers, the engineers. It was, a, it was radio. It was huge influence on this business. Because once Top 40 started happening, yeah. once labels realized, hey, we can make some money on this rock and roll stuff, they start pumping out product. And, you know, you could call it a factory, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, some factories roll out Rolls Royces and some roll out Pintos, yeah, you know, and you know, you don't know what you're going to roll out, and um, but it it was a producer thing. When you think of Phil Spector, a great example, you know, for I'm trying to think about who could you say uh, had that caliber or that credibility of today. When you go to I Dream a Genie and you, you know you Google I Dream a Genie and Phil Spector, you go, oh my God, he played himself on that show. Yeah. Now <laughs> to have that much influence or popularity, whatever you want to call it, to be on a, a silly show like that shows, my God, he that guy had a lot going for him. Yeah. 
you know, and he had the wall of sound, which were these guys. Yeah, he had the wall of sound again. I mean, and uh, you know, I, I think looking back on Phil Spector's career, he produced some amazing records. We also now know that there was uh, the not so great side to Phil Spector in terms of giving credit to m- uh, musicians who worked on his work. I, I, I think of uh, well, you know, Annie. he did give credit. He was one of the few really? actually put on albums. Okay, like uh, the Christmas album, you'll see the credits on there. Okay. Um, he had respect. For, he had a lot of respect for the musician. Okay, he, made a, he might have been crazy, yeah. which we all found out later he yeah. was. Yeah. But yeah. you know, he had respect for the musicians because he he was kind of a guitar player himself. But he loved jazz guitar, so that's why he had my dad, yeah. Howard Roberts, um, Barney Kessel. These are the great jazz guys of the day. Um, but he knew that how to talk the language. Yeah, well, and then going and just moving a little bit further down uh, the the historic path here into the sixties, uh, the Wrecking Crew was brought in. We, I mentioned the Monkees. I know this has sort of become kind of the most famous example, even though it's a bit unfair to the Monkees themselves to the members of the Monkees. Uh, they did eventually become musicians in their own right, but there was they were sort of tarred with this idea. And I don't think that detracts from the work that uh, your dad and the and the Wrecking Crew did, but. Uh, they were brought in for just when somebody needed this West Coast sound and or just great musicians. This was the this is the guys that you brought in, guys and women. Uh, let's I don't want to miss Carol Kay, who is yeah. amazing. I think she could do a film about her. She has certainly had one of yeah. the more remarkable careers uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but the baseline, I'm just going to say for for people who don't know her work, they they obviously know her from Good Vibration, Help Me Run, a Sloop John B, California Girls, and the amazing baseline and the beat goes on, uh, and and also Wichita Lineman, which is mentioned in here, amazing bass player, amazing bass player. Right. So there's yeah. just so many things. I, this is one of the probably I feel like a kid in a candy store when I'm talking to you, Denny. <laughs> uh, there's just so many things I want to talk to you about, and I don't have the time to do it, but. Yeah. You know, uh, great music, wonderful kind of camaraderie. They, it feels like they really liked each other. Was that the sense that you have from it? Yeah, they did. You know, if if they didn't like each other, they could never have hung out as much. You know, and the thing is, they also, if they didn't play, Cheryl's a great example. She was not just a woman in a studio, like a girlfriend or someone like that. She was there as a guitar player or as a bass player. And... That's I give the guys so much credit because those those instruments, especially bass, they, bass and the drummer have to lock in. Yeah. That's what everybody's playing off of. Yeah. So she, that's why she was there. Great time, you know, and innovative and everything else. So they looked at her like that, and mm-hmm. um, you know, so they did get along. But if they couldn't, if they couldn't play, as as Glenn Glenn Campbell said, he said, "Listen," I said. If you couldn't keep up, you're not coming back the next day. Yeah. You know, and that was huge because, like we said, back to Mono, you only got one track. Yeah. So you had to nail it. Yeah. And you had to move on. Just don't blow it for the, for the next session because we got to get out of here. Well, that what comes across in the Wrecking Crew is um, the respect that they had for one another. And and, and I in a, in a sense that they knew they were good and and they thrived i don't know how much competition there was within the this musical collection the wrecking crew and good competition i mean uh, but it sure yeah, felt like it, it. W- yeah you know it, it's funny because my father always said there's there's no jealousy if there's enough work you know what i mean if everybody's working you're happy yeah and in those days um 
you know, my dad, when he, you know, they were doing, oh, God, you know, they could be doing 20-something dates a week. Yeah. You know, now you got to go three or four times a day. Yeah. Uh, a great example was when someone told me from the union, said, you know, your dad, Earl, and Hal in 1967 had the most contracts in the 400 range, meaning like, oh so 400 range of contracts just with the AFM, you know, you got to figure they're taking off weekends or doing, they're maybe not, you know, maybe a vacation or Christmas time or something, and maybe cash dates or club dates, whatever. They're working three, four times a day sometimes. And, you know, so when Dad was working so much, he would write down, if someone called said, hey, you know what, uh, I'm not available, he would write down who called. In case that other call or the other recording date he had scheduled um, canceled. Yeah. So he would, you know, he one time had like 30 different numbers at one week. It was extraordinary. You know, for one week, they'd not be able to take those 30 calls. You know, so it was a business. And, you know, and I, you know, it sounds, I'm not trying to be cold about it. It was about musicians making a living, a yeah. good living, you know, because there were union musicians here. They were double scale. They put their kids through school. They put food on the table. I never saw my dad play guitar. I was born in 61, never saw him play guitar at home until maybe mid-70s. Really? When he started doing his own jazz records. Yeah. Because dad never practiced. He didn't need to. Yeah. You know what I mean? He practiced before I was born, in a sense, because in the late 50s, he was practicing seven, eight, ten hours a day. My mom said he'd watch TV and just have the guitar in his hand doing scales, and then he'd get up, take a break, do something else, and he would read music upside down, meaning like he would turn the music up and so he didn't memorize it. Yeah. He would read trumpet parts. He would read, he was, ended up being one of the most phenomenal readers in the studio, and that's why his career went into the movies many years later. Well, but these guys were working musicians. Yeah, it's beyond question his uh, his abilities. I, it, I'm I'm look I'm going to go back to some of your dad's work here, looking through work at the Beach Boys, Everly Brothers, the Association, Barbara Streisand, Elvis Presley, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Zappa, Sam Cooke, yeah. Cher, Frank's uh, Frank and Nancy Sinatra, and and this is the stuff. This is kind of fun stuff. The TV work he did. Now, who can forget the the guitar line in Bonanza? For God's sake. Green Acres, Green Acres, Mash, Batman. You're right, Batman. He worked on Elvis Presley's comeback special. Oh, the, the film work for French Connection, Godfather, Jaws, Deer Hunter, Field of Dreams. What a remarkable, what an amazing career. Oh, I mean, uh, did he ever have him? And you said he did jazz albums later on. Did he ever have the idea that I'm going to go out and form my own band and just go out and play on the road, or was just this too good no. for me? Yeah. No, it's funny because, yeah, that was the last thing you ever want to do. If you're that busy in town, the last thing you want to do is go do that. Because, A, you don't want to leave town because someone's going to fill your slot. You know what I mean? And that was, you know, again, it's like just any any freelancer, all of us. You know, and, you you know, and he didn't want to, that's hard work going on the road. Yeah. You know, he's doing hard work at home, but he's getting paid really well. Um. And then, you know, when he did a jazz thing, you know, you're doing the jazz thing, but jazz never paid. Right. So you get paid for jazz. I mean, you got to get a level of, like, you know, and it's funny because even the greatest jazz players that were living there, Barney Kessel and Rebels and all those guitar players, they at least found to make a career. 
you know, yeah. when they were on the road. You know, in L.A., it's a weird, it was always a weird place to play jazz or yeah. make a living at it. Um, but, you know, he, you know, someone asked him, what would you have wanted to be remembered for? Yeah. And he said, listen, he said, anybody of the 12 guitar players in town could do, you know, the Beach Boys stuff or the Marquettes and all those other, or the whatever those, the rock and roll albums, or even Batman stuff. It wasn't such a, you know, it's great to talk about it, but he said, listen, when I got to the point where John Williams or James Warner are saying, Tommy, can you take two weeks off and you know, keep the two weeks of September on hold because I have a score that's all guitar. And it's, um, you know, it's Tom, and that's when he knew I made it. Yeah. He said, because they're asking for Tommy, not the guitar player. <laughs> you know, and that says it all because, you know, being with 80 musicians on a scoring stage was phenomenal. Yeah. You know, when it's all guitar driven and it's all solos with guitar. Well, you, know, you don't. Oh, God. Uh, well, just in closing, what did you what did you find out about your dad that you just didn't expect to find out? What, what did what's the impression coming away from this film about your dad that you like, you didn't have before? You know, it, I, I don't know if it was anything. It confirmed a lot about my dad, you know, in terms of what I thought and I knew about my dad. There were so many stories. Um, like I said, I never went to recording sessions, yeah. you know, and we saw you know, met these guys, and most of the musicians I never knew until this film. Yeah. I didn't know most of them, because I never, Dad never brought work home. Yeah. We never went to the recording studios. Um, but, you know, the thing that was the most special thing for us, for, or for me, was when people talked about him, how he helped them in the studio, or even uh, guitar players around the country said, I met your dad, and he was, he taught me this, and he taught me that, or he picked me up for lunch, and that was special. There was one guy, that, one of the great bass players of the 70s, his name was Chuck Rainey, um, phenomenal bass player, you know, the next generation of, the, you know, demigods of the bass. Yeah. And he said, I came to town, I was doing a TV day. He said, and TV and film is totally different than records. You, you, you got to lock in and you can't mess up. I never met your dad. He says, we we're recording. He says, I lost where I was in the piece, and it's our time signature. And all of a sudden, his dad, I don't know where it starts, hits his cord, like makes a huge noise. And he looked at him, Tommy, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Let's do it again. Did it again. They started up again. And you know, I'm lost again, he says. And Tommy comes in with a bigger cord, drops the pick, let's go again. <laughs> and they're all looking at my father like he's nuts. And yeah. my father turned to Chuck. He says, okay, now you're on your own. Yeah. There you, you know, go. My father took the hit for the new guy hey. because he could. Yeah. And that said so much about him as a person. You know, I think he was one of the greatest photographers of all time. But yeah. it doesn't matter. If they don't like you, who cares? Right. They're a jerk, who cares? Well, you know, and they look dumb. Well, Denny, he obviously loved music. He loved making music. He loved being around music. And the beauty of it is, is he was able to be a musician, a working professional musician, creating yeah. amazing stuff. And he could be home for dinner. And he could be part of his yeah. family. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm just, I, as much as they say they were lucky to be here, you know, they were at the right place at the right time, yeah. I realized I was at the right place at the right time to make this film. After 19 years, today is the day it comes out. Yeah, it, it's and, uh, yeah. 
It's a great movie. It's so much fun. I really, uh, the audience, I, they need to know this. You'll have such a fun time watching this movie. Even if you didn't oh, grow up so in this year. It's so much fun with people. What's that? It's so much fun with an audience. So much fun with an audience. Yeah. It yeah. is fun with an audience. And even if you didn't grow up during this period of time, just just to watch these musicians create the music that they do, you, your, your film captures all of it. This, the, the good, and, the, and then there's the stories about the guys who... You know, had a tough time after you know post wrecking crew and Hal Blaine especially. My God, sure. how that how that happened is beyond me. But it, it's a redemptive story as well. There's a lot of great things in here. I want to let our listeners know that you're in town here tonight. You're going to be at the New Art along with Hal Blaine, Joe Osborne, Don Randy, Bill Pittman, and others from the film. You're going to be at the screenings um, at the five o'clock. For and the seven thirty right. for Q and A is that just tonight? Or are you going to be there tomorrow night as well? Uh, tomorrow night I'll have uh, Joe Osborne and Don Randy with me. Okay. Uh, the seven thirty sold out tonight. Oh, so fancy. buy the tickets for five o'clock Fun. tonight, or you know, or come tomorrow night. We'll be there. Oh, this is great! This is great. The New Art Fantastic Theater, right off the four hundred five at Santa Monica Boulevard. You can't miss it. It's you get off the freeway heading towards the beach. It's right in front of you. Uh, the film also opens here in Los Angeles at the South Coast Village Three. It's in New York at the IFC Center Five, uh, Portland, uh, Fayetteville in North Carolina, Dallas, Texas, Cincinnati, Ohio, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Calgary. Oh my gosh, you're in Canada oh, yeah. as well. Wonderful. I'm all over. You're all over? What's that? I'm all over Canada this week. Well, well, Danny, I thank you so much for being here today. And thank the you, film, guys. Oh, thank you. The film is The Wrecking Crew, uh, producer, director, Danny Tedesco, joining us today. Thanks, man, and all the best to you. Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing you. All right, take, take care. care. All right, bye. Bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.